Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Benedict, I I think it's time that we discussed this very generous offer from the British. If Benedict Arnold goes with the British, the British will have so much winning that the British may get bored with winning. This is what Arnold does. He wins. Shouldn't we talk about this, Benedict, dear, as husband and wife? I'm speaking with myself, number one, because I have a very good brain and I've said a lot of things. I know what I'm doing and I listen to a lot of people, but my primary consultant is myself and I have a good instinct for this stuff. Benedict, you've changed. It's... As if when you speak, some other person is talking. Let me say this about Joseph Reed. Lying Joe. So unattractive. A little man with funny hands. And he tries to court-martial me, court-martial Arnold, Arnold who wins. I just wonder if we should think about how history will judge us. History. History will say that Arnold was the best. Congress should have promoted him faster. People should have been nicer to Arnold. They weren't nice to this man who wins. Only wins. And what happened? This place remained a British colony instead of becoming a great nation that then became not so great until somebody made it great again. Sometimes the words coming out of your mouth are like a different language. I know words. I have the best words. Oh, well, that settles it for me. We're going to go throw in our lot with those charming British soldiers and have a long, lovely life together. I wonder what people will be saying about us 240 years from today. Let's listen in, shall we? And now, the gentleman who took Ethan Allen to Betty Ford... Colin McEnroe. It really wasn't just me. It was an intervention. And even some of the Green Mountain boys came along. I mean, they realized he had a problem. So, uh, yeah, we're going to talk not about Ethan Allen and not about uh, Alexander Hamilton, because you all have Alexander Hamilton fatigue. Although Alexander Hamilton is not a stranger to this story. I guess he will be wandering in and out of uh, of it. But we're going to be talking uh, about uh, Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold, who uh, has been a source of fascination uh, for uh, for well, really, ever since his story unfold, uh, unfolded all those years ago, uh, I, uh, back in the 1980s, knew a guy named Bill Stanley, uh, who was a newspaper columnist in Norwich and many other things in Norwich besides, and who basically dedicated a big chunk of his life to trying to rehabil- rehabilitate the image of uh, Benedict Arnold. It's tough to do, given some of the stuff that he did, but there are people who want to explore that. Uh, there are a lot of them working right now. There are three books out right now about, uh, uh, about Benedict Arnold. We have all of the authors. <laughs> of those books on our show. Nathaniel Philbrick, uh, his book is Valiant Ambition, uh, George Washington and Benedict Arnold and the Fate of the American Revolution. He's joining us by phone. Eric Lehman is in studio with me right now. He's the author of Homegrown Terror, Benedict Arnold uh, and the Burning of New London. Uh, Brad Meltzer has written not a book of history, but a thriller, a contemporary thriller, looking back to possible secrets stowed back in the days of Benedict Arnold. Uh, it's called The House of Secrets. It's co-written with Todd Goldberg. Uh, he's joining us, I think, by phone from the studios of the Nerdist, which is very exciting because I listen to the Nerdist podcast. Uh, so uh, you're all here today. But, you know, before I even talk to you, that's not even it. That's not even all of the ways in which Benedict Arnold is in a contemporary setting being looked at all over again in the AMC series Turn. And Wolfie will uh, play that clip right here. Uh, I think w- what you're going to hear here uh, are people behind the scenes in the AMC Revolutionary War series Turn. The first person you hear, I think, is the actor who plays Benedict Arnold on, on the show. 
they really wanted to show him as a hero and a multifaceted character, someone who was both a fighter and a lover, a great general, and whose loss from the Patriot cause was, was enormous. Nobody doubted his skill on the battlefield, and so that's where we meet this guy. We meet him before he's ever decided to become a traitor in any way. I think it will surprise people how close George Washington and Benedict Arnold were. Part of why Benedict Arnold is considered the great traitor of this country is because he was Arnold, you know, Washington's, one of his greatest allies, one of his greatest friends. We show what goes into making somebody turn against their country. Okay, you think that's interesting and a little exotic. There's also a uh, video game called Assassin's Creed Three, which is an alternative history uh, in which uh, George Washington kind of becomes, I haven't actually played this video game. This is what I have surmised anyway, uh, that uh, George Washington kind of becomes king of the United States. And both Israel Putnam, also of Connecticut, uh, and Benedict Arnold especially are big characters uh, in this video game. So I'm just gonna let you hear a little bit of this. This is, uh, uh, there's a, I guess he's an assassin actually, but I think he shows up to four an assassination plot against Benedict Arnold or something. Anyway, you'll hear the Benedict Arnold uh, character talking right here. What in God's name are you doing? That man was a British spy. He intended to kill you, Major Arnold. What? General Washington learned of the plot and sent me to foil it. Indeed. We need all the support we can muster. Some of my men are leaving on a munitions delivery to a nearby camp, and I need you to escort them. Find John Anderson upon your arrival. You'll have further instructions. All right, don't use Assassin's Creed 3 for your history paper. If you're writing, run about it's not accurate. All right, so now let's meet our guests. Uh, I said uh, who they all were. Um, and somebody needs to sort of sketch out uh, maybe the, kind of the 60 second uh, Benedict Arnold elevator pitch of what really did happen. So, uh, Eric, if you were explaining this to somebody who barely recognized the name Benedict Arnold, what would you tell him? I would say, well, he was this hero. He, he started out as a a very firm patriot, uh, won and lost a bunch of battles and, and uh, was wounded in the cause. And then uh, for one reason or another, or several reasons, turned uh, and started uh, corresponding with the British and asked for money to switch sides. And he did. And then he became a British general and <laughs> attacked Virginia, almost captured Thomas Jefferson, uh, attacked his home state of Connecticut. Um, Nathaniel, I think we hear this a little bit in some of the clips that I played. The thing that makes Benedict Arnold especially fascinating, or one of the things, and that makes it made his story so compelling from the get-go was there was so much potential for him to be the other thing, right? He already had a certain amount of bona fides uh, as a hero of the revolution. Uh, I think people saw in him Although he was controversial, he was court-martialed as we, or there was an attempted court-martial of him, as we will talk about later. But I think a lot of people saw in him exactly the opposite of the thing he became. Absolutely. In the beginning of the revolution, he was our best battlefield general, bar none. He uh, took Fort Ticonderoga along with Ethan Allen in the very beginning, then led this incredible march through the wilderness of Maine to Quebec, uh, which won him the title of the American Hannibal. And then uh, uh, fought the British to a draw in a naval battle on Lake Champlain, of all places, that you could argue saved America in 1776. And then to top it all off at the Battle of Saratoga a year later, uh, he, he's absolutely instrumental in winning the battle that helps contribute to bringing the French in on the side of the Americans. And so there really was no one, uh, short of Washington, that did more for the American cause in the early years of the Revolution. 
I want to come back to how incredibly badass uh, Benedict Arnold could be in just a second. But but Brad Meltzer, for you, I mean, we live in an age that's fascinated by dualism. You know, whether it's Tony Soprano or Walter White or Jamie Lannister on House of Cards, there's nothing that attracts us as a guy who is who appears on the face to be just a proper villain and maybe even a monster of sorts, but who also seems to have that kind of soft, creamy center somewhere or, or that, that little spark of potential goodness. I assume that as somebody who writes contemporary thrillers, along with a lot of other stuff, um, that's one of the things that drew you. No, absolutely. That's what drew me nine years ago. I've been working on this because I was in the National Archives and they took me into one of their treasure vaults in Washington, D.C. And they took me in this back room. They opened up a drawer and there was this kind of, you know, old piece of stationery, a single sheet of paper, looks like a paperback book turned sideways. And it was an oath of allegiance. And what George Washington used to do is take his top military men and have them line up and sign. I do solemnly swear I will forever be loyal to this country. And we still do it today with our military. You raise your right hand when you enter the military and solemnly swear you're going to be loyal to America. And the one they handed me, they were all numbered in the corner, number one, number two, number three, four, and they, I had number five. And the curse of swirl handwriting was signed by Benedict Arnold. And in that moment, Benedict Arnold was no longer this kind of like curse word we call each other. But in this exact moment, he's a hero. He's a decorated military officer. He's one of Washington's top people. And he put pen on this sheet of paper and he swore this oath, which at that moment, uh, you know, I was like, this is not just a bad guy. He's also a good guy. And isn't that the real appeal, at least for me, is, you know, when I was doing House of Secrets, uh, what really struck me was, you know, we all are good and we all are bad. And, and we even say in the book, you know, is Benedict Arnold a good guy or is he a bad guy or is he just complicated? And I think for all of us today, um, we're all scared and we're all brave and we're all bold and we're all terrified and we're all amazing. And sometimes all in the same day and sometimes all in the same hour, depending on when you catch us. And I think we used to realize we had some George Washington in us. Now we feel like we also have some Benedict Arnold in us. And Really, what we all are is just complicated. Mm-hmm. Betsy Kaplan, who produced the show, actually does not have any Benedict Arnold or badness in her. But I take your point. Pretty much everybody else does. Uh, we're all uh, pretty <laughs> dualistic uh, besides that. Um, so, Eric, you're probably the person of the three the least likely to cut Benedict Arnold much slack over the long haul. But, you know, you really do have to give him credit for being totally badass in this early period. And, and we even skipped over the Battle of Ridgefield. This is it's so typical Benedict Arnold, right? He gets two horses shot out from under him. The first time the horse falls on top of him and this British soldier runs up to him, gun pointed, and demands that he surrender. And Benedict Arnold supposedly says something like, not yet, and shoots the guy. I mean, this, you know, really, when he's in full, you know, he's, when he's in, in full attack mode, he's a pretty tremendous fighter. Yeah, he, I mean, he's a badass all the way through his life, actually. I mean, later on, the French capture him during the Napoleonic Wars and they're going to sell him to the Americans. Um, he's, he's in his 50s by this point. And uh, he escapes them, jumps off the ship, swims to an, a British ship, and, and escapes. Um, he was physically uh, incredibly courageous. Uh, I think sometimes we, we conflate physical courage with moral courage, and I think Great that's, that's uh, a problem, um, especially when you're talking about someone like Arnold. Um, but uh, he, he's, he was a competent ma- battlefield general, as they said. He was, uh, he, and you read the first part, half of my book, and it's he's the hero. Um, he just, until he's not, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, 
he uh, he he something happens in him and he uh, is able to do things which his contemporaries we might understand a little better but his contemporaries thought were just completely beyond the pale so uh, Brad Meltzer I'm going to go to you next because I know you're leaving us uh, a little bit early to uh, get ready for your nerdist uh, appearance but um, so what if you're going to look for a different way to think about um, Benedict Arnold and without giving away anything from the book how are you going to think differently about him? I mean, as Eric is going to tell us later, this guy, you know, I mean, once he went over to the British, he did some pretty horrible things, burned you know, cities along the Connecticut coastline. Uh, people are still a little ticked off about that. So um, so how, what prism do you use to refract him differently? I, I don't think I need to refract him as much as tell the story, because, you know, all these great historical stories, what they are, they're mirrors, and you hold them up and you see what you want to see, and what you're really looking for is yourself, right? That's why we love these old stories, is we find out more about ourselves the more we dig. But for me, what became my obsession was those last moments um, between Benedict Arnold and George Washington, which is some of the most heartbreaking in U.S. history. And there's, you know, unsubstantiated, but reports, one of the reports says it's one of the only times that uh, George Washington has ever seen crying. I'm not sure if I believe that one or not, but it's a potent image. And what struck me is in those last moments, Alexander Hamilton delivers a letter. He doesn't do it by a song or by rap. You know, he does it in the old-fashioned way. But he delivers this letter from Benedict Arnold to George Washington. And to me, it's one of the most amazing letters, uh, because when you read it, he Benedict Arnold asked for three things. He says, one, don't kill my wife, Peggy, because she didn't know I was a traitor. He says, don't kill the staff. They didn't know I was a traitor either. And then in one of the craziest moments of letter-writing history, he asks for his baggage and his clothes back. And amazingly, George Washington sends it. Uh, it strikes me because, of course, you know, this guy just put a knife in the back of George Washington, uh, and he's basically asking for his stuff back. But Washington sends it, and what, and what struck me, and this is the thriller writer, and this is where I build my book on, is, you know, is obviously this is where the fiction takes over, but that moment is all real. But truly what no one knows to this day, nobody knows what is in that baggage that George Washington sends back to Benedict Arnold. And as a thriller writer, that's where I go, huh, because it doesn't make any emotional sense, right? He hates this man. Washington spends the rest of the war trying to hunt and kill this man, and yet he sends him back his stuff. Is he In that moment, is he completely just feeling like I should do the right thing, I should do the gentleman thing. You know, anyone you would ask would say, light it on fire, put, fill it full of lice, do something terrible. But he sends this stuff back, and the thriller writer me goes, well, what's in the stuff? What's there? And that's where the thriller begins, but it, but it certainly you know, begs the question of it. It almost doesn't make logical sense, and that's where I obviously take the thriller into the fun way. But for me, again, it comes right back down to um, these things are complicated. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I know you've got to go uh, deal with the nerdist, uh, Nathaniel. Uh, yeah, you got me to the half hour, so as long as you, I, I'm, I'm good for right. that. So uh, Nathaniel and Eric are with us uh, for the entire show. Well, uh, and I think they'll all want to talk about this anyway. But uh, so in one of uh, one of your characters in the book uh, says, uh, life wasn't a popcorn movie. It didn't have a neat and tidy en- ending. Every country in the world is soaked in blood, democracies, and dictatorships alike. Yet most people only cared about what they could see on the surface. This is kind of what you're saying to us right now. But is there a way in which 
the chaos, and I, I think Nathaniel's book chimes in about this uh, a bit too, uh, the chaos and the shifting loyalties uh, of the re- revolution are kind of understated. I mean, I think, you know, as school children were kind of handed this idea that there were a bunch of patriots uh, who were just absolutely wholeheartedly and in an unalloyed fashion uh, ready to do anything they uh, could uh, for independence. And then there was this one really bad guy uh, who kind of crossed the line. Uh, and and I think there may be an argument to be made. Well, no, you know, on an average day, there were all kinds of people who had all kinds of shifting loyalties or levels of enthusiasm about stuff like this. Yeah, no, and listen, that line is one of my favorites by Todd Goldberg, my co-writer on the book. And um, one of the things, my son was just asking me that very same question. My youngest son said, well, you know, is Ben Darrell, like, you know, what do you do wrong? And trying to, you know, what I look at it as is exactly what you said. It's not this black and white thing where you just say, you know what, he was, you know, good one day and turned bad the next day. We, we are fed this idea that, you know, everyone was a patriot, everyone was good, and then they suddenly went bad. You know, we forget this is still a guy who, you know, all these people spoke with British accents. They were still fresh from this place that we were now revolting against. And, you know, there are loyalties there. There's history there. There's memories there. There's family there. Um, you know, for so many of the people who are fighting there, and it becomes a complicated thing, especially when you feel like you're not getting your due. Um, and then it's not about the American Revolution. It's about just being human. It's about feeling like you were overlooked or feeling like you didn't get what you wanted. And, um, and this is a guy who, you know, clearly was given his, his blood and his soul to this. And one of the things I was trying to say before is, you know, I, I live in Florida now. Um, you know, even after that, that, you know, those battles you were talking about, Ben and Donald, you know, is they're like, don't fight anymore. You know, give it up. You know, he's over. I live in Florida. It's the complaining capital of the world. If any, you know, if I got shot off a horse twice, I'd be like, I'm done. It's over. And this guy's still going forward like he's the T-1000, the Terminator. Um, and it lets us tell this amazing story. But, again, that doesn't mean he's a hero. It doesn't mean, he, you know, what his moral state is. Um, he's clearly a, a driven, driven man. And driven men want. And when you have a lot of wants, um, for the opposite side, that you also have a lot of opportunity. And that's where Benedict Arnold becomes the most interesting to me, because it's just he becomes a person. He's not some, you know, we used to all always be interested in George Washington and the Founding Fathers. And I think, you know, this is why Alexander Hamilton or Aaron Burr are suddenly the, at the forefront in the play, or why you have three people at the same exact time talking about our Benedict Arnold books, which is insanity in itself, but just shows that we're, we're interested in the complexity. We, we've seen the black and white lantern-jawed, you know, mold of, that we've seen the Founding Fathers crafted in. But boy, don't we want to see the more complex one, because that's who we are as a country now. Well, Insanity itself is uh, pretty much our format. So let's uh, talk about this with our other two writers here. Uh, Nathaniel Philbrick, I'm going to go to you first. This is this is there in your book, too, the notion that this was a revolutionary war, but it was also kind of a civil war. This was uh, a, 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 a population here in the colonies which didn't really speak with one voice, which was, in fact, trying to sort out who was going to be loyal to whom. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it it's... The reality was that instead of fighting the British, most Americans were spending their time fighting each other. Uh, there truly was a civil war going on, particularly around the peripheries of British-occupied New York. And and so you can see someone like Arnold, who has dedicated the early years of the Revolution to fighting the British and then watching his own countrymen um, uh, not being willing to pay the taxes to support uh, Washington's army, uh, uh, arguing among themselves, you know, he's saying, "Why am I doing this?" Uh, you know, and as the years went along, 
and the country just seemed to be falling apart with each state going its own way and the, the big question was if if washington could somehow claim victory would there be a country left uh to support that and and so you can begin to see the context of arnold's uh increasing bitterness that uh you know hey his countrymen aren't supporting him but actually his country is falling apart and perhaps it is time to bring the british back and restore the liberties we had before this revolution broke out you know that's taking arnold's point of view which does not uh, necessarily forgive him for selling his loyalty to the highest bidder so um eric you know we know that some of this, at least at the outset, was almost determined by geography as much as anything else. I mean, that's kind of what Nathaniel's saying, too. Now, you know, if you lived in New York, pretty good chance you're going to be a Tory. You know, you lived in Boston, pretty good chance you're going to be a patriot. You live in New Haven, eh, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll just say one quick thing. This is why I don't get invited to any Hartford Current anniversary celebrations. Um, I unearthed some charges that Thomas Green, the founder of the Hartford Current, then the Connecticut Current, when he lived in New Haven, was accused of having Tory sympathies. When he moved the newspaper back up to uh, up to Hartford, which was much closer to the Patriot stronghold, you know, 100 percent Patriot. And there was some of that fluidity in evidence uh, around the colonies for quite a long time. Right, Eric? Yeah. I, and I have a lot of sympathy for the, the Tories and the loyalists. I mean, most of them thought what they were doing was the right thing to do for their country. Um, and I, I think that it, we shouldn't lump Arnold in with them necessarily because uh, Arnold, unlike them, unlike most of them, who, when the British took New York, went over to, there were people from Connecticut who went across the Sound and joined the, the army, uh, the British army. So uh, they fought for what they believed in, for their home. They thought that the revolution was going to lead to chaos and anarchy. And so Arnold, though, he's fighting very valiantly for one side, and then in the middle of an armed conflict, switches sides and takes money to do it. Um, and then he's fighting, literally fighting in some cases against former comrades who he had shed blood with earlier. Um, people, people really couldn't understand that back then. It, it, it was really, uh, it blew their minds. Um, and then when he, when he attacked uh, New London, then that took that to another, another step. Um, people were really dumbfounded that he could come back and, and attack his neighbors that way. Um, even though other Tories had been doing it, um, you know, it was the fact that he was a hero first that made what he did so bad. Uh, or, oh, sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to in interrupt. But actually, I think we'll just grab a break here when we come back. Uh, I think it's time for Eric and Nathaniel to talk about, well, what did happen? Like, how come, how come Benedict Arnold was not just this unalloyed hero from day one of the revolution to its very end? What happened to this guy? When Arnold and the Champagne men delayed the British soul And how the Navy found its start all beaten in Balcor Bay And saved the young country from British success through resourcefulness that may all right, so we're doing a whole show about Benedict Arnold. I'm so happy. I've wanted to do this for a very long time. Uh, there are three books out about Benedict Arnold right now, but we're down to two authors, uh, Nathaniel Philbrick, um, author of Valiant Ambition, George Washington and Benedict Arnold and the Fate of the American Revolution, and Homegrown Terror by Eric Lehman, uh, Benedict Arnold and, and the Burning of New London. So um, 
Actually, Eric, I'm going to start with you and then transition uh, from there to Nathaniel. So, I mean, one way to look at this guy is he's kind of John Rowland with a musket. You know, he's a narcissist. He's a materialist. Uh, he has a lifestyle he can't support. And in a way, this is kind of the history of treason, too. If you look at the Cold War, uh, uh, you know, some, some of the American intelligence people who went over to the other side and stuff like that, you know, there's a small group of them who are attracted to ideology. Uh, and, but for the most part, it's I want money and I'm not being taken seriously enough where I am right now. My, I, I'm not being advanced enough. Nobody understands my contributions. I mean, in a way, this guy is just sort of your boilerplate defector uh, or is there another way to think about it? Uh, I think you you nailed most of it there. I mean, people always ask me, what, why, you know, what is the cause of this? Why did he go bad? And I will say, well, why do men go bad? Money and young women. <laughs> um, it's, it's something that uh, his contemporaries talked about the whole time. They couldn't, uh, Lafayette uh, couldn't, he, he, it pained him to call Arnold a scoundrel because they had been, been fighting together. But, um, these, these, uh, you know, Washington thought he was a sociopath. He didn't use that word, but that's exactly how he described him. Um, even though he had been like a father to Arnold before this defection, before the uh, West Point debacle. Um, so uh, that's that's uh, that's what uh, I think is going on here. I mean, I, I think that uh, his betrayal. We were talking before his betrayal was not of America, because as you have pointed out, America didn't really exist back then. Um, his betrayal was of his friends, the friends he made in the army, the friends that he had as a merchant, um, the people he fought beside. Um, that's, that's where I find what he did beyond the usual uh, defector. Okay, so Nathaniel Philbrick, uh, I mean, a real deep uh, Benedict Arnold sympathizer, of which there are some, um, would say, well, I mean, you know, wh wh which is the chicken and which is the egg? In some ways, uh, Arnold felt betrayed. Um, he'd been injured in battle. Uh, he he was brought before a court-martial over a bunch of nickel and dime stuff, as far as he was concerned, that never really stuck anyway. Uh, there were ways in which he, he felt betrayed. But I guess I would ask you, did he feel legitimately betrayed? Yeah, yes and no. Um, you know, early on in the war, he dedicated a lot of his personal fortune to supporting the war effort, and Congress showed no interest in, in, in reimbursing him for that. And then he was overlooked for promotion. Uh, in uh, after the Battle of Valcour Island, he was our best brigadier general, bar none, and Continental Congress, in its wisdom, decided that since Con Connecticut already had two major generals, they were going to pass over Arnold and elevate five people beyond past him to major general. And this this irritated him. But I think that you know the the one thing you have to really look at is the injuries he sustained at Saratoga. You know, this was a guy whose physicality was absolutely essential to he was. He was a natural athlete, swashbuckler uh, from the beginning. And at Saratoga, he's already injured his left leg once uh, in Quebec. And at Saratoga, it, it, his left thigh is fractured by a, a musket ball. Splinters are leaking out of that leg for, for months to come. Uh, he's He's in a bed for more than four months, confined to what's called a fracture box, the equivalent of a medieval torture device. And, you know, meanwhile, Horatio Gates, his great enemy and commander at Saratoga, gets all the credit for the battle that you could argue Arnold essentially was absolutely critical to the victory. And so, 
you know, and this, this messed with not only Arnold's body, clearly, because the leg that would emerge from the fracture box was two inches shorter than the other one. It would be more than a year before he could walk uh, unassisted, uh, two years before he could ride a horse. And, you know, but it, psychically, he was, he was really um, changed after that. And so, yeah, you know, it, it, all of this had a cumulative effect. Uh, and then he does meet a beautiful woman. Uh, that that would contribute to all this. And so, you know, I think, yeah, you can develop all sorts of reasons why he does it, but ultimately what we do is determined by our character. And uh, and you can see sort of the seeds of where Arnold will ultimately go in the beginning. You know, he is hot-headed. His passionate nature uh, is something he has a hard time controlling when he's not in a battlefield situation and he rubs people the wrong way. But, you know, he had his reasons. And so I think that's kind of disturbing for a lot of Americans because it's so easy for us to say, hey, he was evil from the start. Uh, he, uh, by turning traitor, he revealed his who he really was. And, you know, the truth is... is is, reflects kind of badly on the Americans because, you know, it was a dysfunctional Congress, which is nothing new, uh, that contributed to well, a lot of the problems. And, uh, and so, you know, I think in some ways people, uh, all Americans were complicit because, remember, America was established through an act of disloyalty. We rebelled from England. And I think there's, you know, sort of residual guilt hovered over the beginning of this country, and Arnold fed to that in a very uh, alarming way to Americans. And so he really, you know, he he was a lightning rod from the start, and he continues to be a lightning rod to this day. Um, actually, uh, as uh, Eric knows, there have been trials, sort of mock trials of uh, of Benedict Arnold down in Norwich uh, in the past and, and elsewhere. And it's something, you know, high school history classes all over the country decide to do. But also at the National Museum of American History, uh, part of the Smithsonian, uh, they now do this thing. I think they call it a time trial of Benedict Arnold where uh, somebody comes out, he's Benedict Arnold. The audience kind of gets to uh, ask some questions and, and make uh, kind of a decision. Uh, we'll just play a little clip of what that might sound like on a typical day at the Smithsonian. My understanding is that you were a great general and did many good things, but then you betrayed your country. My country? What country? The United States of America was no country. No authority had been given by the people to conclude it, nor had they authorized its ratification. There was no constitution. There were only these words of ambitious men fraudulently avowing this affinity for perpetual union. And let me assure you, this union was a farce. So there you go. Uh, this country, what country? Exactly what uh, Nathaniel and Eric have alluded to, that there, this was a rebellion. So uh, it's a little bit more of a, a moving target or a shifting set of loyalties. But Eric, all right. So Nathaniel, uh, Nathaniel sort of said two things which make me think of Macbeth. One of them is obviously that Macbeth is the question that Nathaniel's asking. Um, does Macbeth... Uh, contained within him? Was he always the person that he eventually becomes in this Shakespearean tragedy? Uh, it was just a matter of just time before that happened. Or did he, does he sort of wake up in a different place than he ever thought he would be, you know, surrounded by people who manipulate him by circumstances he couldn't have foreseen? Uh, and it's a question we ask about ourselves. It's one of the basic existential questions for every human being. Of course, the other thing it has in common with Macbeth is a lady Macbeth. And Nathaniel also uh, referred to that, Peggy Shippen. So, I mean, everybody wants to blame Peggy, at least for some of this. I think on AMC's turn, she takes a lot of the heat. Uh, tell us about Peggy Shippen, Eric. Yeah, you know, I'm always one of those. I'm one of those people that hesitates to blame the woman because they get blamed for way too much. Uh, Eve, bad, for example. <laughs> yeah, Eve is the, the best example. So, um, 
But as Nathaniel was pointing out, I think that, uh, you know, circumstance brings out things in you. And I think that uh, Peggy gave him the opportunity to talk to the British. If he had married a, a wife who was not a secret Tory, if he had married someone who was a, a, a firm Washington supporter, he would have never had the opportunity and even probably not the inclination to go over to the British. Um, he was always a hothead, as Nathaniel pointed out. He, he, was al- he always had these character flaws, and circumstance then takes those little cracks in your personality and widens them, right, mm-hmm. and, and turns them into something horrible. Yeah. So, um, Nathaniel Philbrick, if, um, in fact, uh, Peggy Shippen is Eve, we know who the serpent is. We know who the snake is. Uh, it's Major John Andre, a pretty fascinating character in and of himself. And, in fact, the life that they're living down there in Philadelphia during this kind of cushy but expensive posting that Benedict Arnold has uh, brings them all I- into contact together. So tell us about John Andre. Yeah, well, uh, prior to Arnold's meeting, uh, Peggy, the British had briefly occupied Philadelphia for eight months. And uh, Peggy, uh, coming from the aristocratic side of, of Philadelphia, greatly enjoyed having the, the British officers as part of her social circle during that period. And, and John Andre uh, could speak several languages, was highly educated, very handsome, uh, would act in the, the theatricals that the British would put together. And he was just this you know, a fascinating person that uh, she clearly enjoyed hanging out with. Uh, as evidence of that, uh, Andre, who was also a very talented artist, uh, uh, Created a drawing of her, and you know, and she's she's just beautiful in that drawing, and and um, and, and so you know, Andre, it's it's interesting. He's he's often portrayed fairly uh, sympathetically, uh, but you know, I, I I find him as manipulative and uh, scheming and ambitious as anyone um, uh, when it comes to his own career, and uh, and when it comes to Peggy uh, and and her ultimate relationship with Arnold. Uh, I think Andre is 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 you know very, use, uses all this to his own own ends and his own advancement. Well, yeah. Also, and I'm because I've read these three books, and I'm kind of confused about what's in whose book. But I think Nathaniel, it's in your book that when they're holding Andre at the end, we're jumping ahead a little bit. But when he gets caught, uh, there's this time where American officers, colonial officers, they it's like he's David Bowie or something. I mean, they like they want to go see this guy uh, in, in a very admiring kind of way. Well, you know what he did was uh, he, you know, he was a British spy. Basically, he was trying to. Uh, he had met with uh, met with Arnold, and you can't make this stuff up. I mean, he they meet at midnight on the the, the west side of the Hudson, uh, beside Haverstraw Bay. Uh, Arnold gives him documents that are essential to the British ultimately capturing West Point as bloodlessly as possible. And uh, but Andre's forced to make his way down the Hudson uh, uh, to back to British-occupied New York, and ultimately gets captured by three militiamen. And, uh, and Andre, at this time, he's captured, and he's there for several days, and he makes it, he's very good at befriending every American officer uh, who he's in contact with. And, and what he portrays himself as, as, as he was as betrayed by Arnold, uh, just as the Americans were betrayed by Arnold. And what he do, tries to do is create sympathy, and, he, and it works beautifully. Uh, Hamilton is completely um, 
uh, infatuated <laughs> by Andre and, and almost has a falling out with Washington because Washington is one of the few people who says, no, this guy's a spy. We hang spies. And, um, and that's what ultimately happens. But many of the American, young American officers see Andre as what they aspire to be, an honored, bound uh, a man of the world, uh, you know, a man of education. And so it's a fascinating uh, uh, situation towards the end. And, and um, you know, and Andre becomes this, this focal point for not only for the Americans, but for the British back in New York who, who um, sympathize with him and then blame Arnold uh, for putting him in this situation. And so Arnold really is the one who suffers as a consequence of the martyrdom of, of John Andre. All right, Eric Lehman, uh, we can't let uh, Arnold off the hook uh, without... Uh, we've got to drop the hammer on him. Uh, your book is subtitled Benedict Arnold and the Burning of New London. So uh, at, the, at his very worst, when he's doing the worst things that he can possibly do, how bad does it get? Well, you know, uh, after he goes into New York, as, as, as someone was pointing out, we, we had to... Uh, you know, Washington's trying to capture him, the whole thing. He goes to Virginia. He burns down some cities there. And then he volunteers for this mission to come to Connecticut, um, right down the, you know, a few miles away from where he lived. Um, he knows the people in New London. He sailed with the brothers of William Ledyard, who commands the forces there. He's best, he's very good friends with Nathaniel Shaw. Even while he's uh, talking with the British, he's also corresponding with Shaw, trying to get Shaw to help him out with money. Um, and he he goes to New London, and the first house he sets on fire is Nathaniel Shaw's um, and uh, burns down the whole city, which he says was an accident later. But, of course, he was doing this, and the, this was common practice. It was not a, <laughs> it was not a, just a, uh, an accident. Um, and uh, luckily for him, perhaps, uh, he was not on the other side of the river where uh, the massacre at, the, at Croton Heights happens. Um, but he was the commander of the forces. He wanted to be in charge of those forces. He wanted uh, that honor. And so, you know, we, we give him the honor for Saratoga and Ridgefield and these great victories. We should also give him the responsibility for uh, how bad it gets. Uh, New London is takes the highest percentage of damage of any American city during the whole war. It's uh, a small city, of course. And so is the Battle of Croton Heights, a very small battle, relatively, but highest number of casualties. Didn't he also go to Virginia, too? Yeah, yeah. He he goes down there, he burns Petersburg and Rich, Richmond. He burns down Richmond. It was a new new town then. But um, And, yeah, he there's a story that he knocked on the door of Jefferson's mansion there in Richmond uh, with some handcuffs getting ready to, 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 uh, to take him away. And Jefferson... Uh, tried the same thing Washington did, tried to send in some big, tall West Virginians to like sort of SEAL Team 6 him out of the British camp. Um, the, uh, the One of the Germans who served with him down there in Virginia said that he kept two pistols by his bed, bedside, um, and the German officer thought that they were not to kill somebody else. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a break on that ominous note, uh, and we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about um, how... Uh, history uses uh, figures like Benedict Arnold.
stay with us. We might be able to blame all this stuff on General Horatio Vader, Darth's cousin. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Leah Myers and Esther Shitu. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Sam Adams. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff reenacting the Battle of Saratoga, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, we're here with Eric Lehman in studio with me. He's the author of Homegrown Terror, Benedict Arnold, and the Burning of New London. And Nathaniel Philbrick's joining us by phone. Uh, he's the author of Valiant Ambition, George Washington, Benedict Arnold, and the Fate of the American Revolution. So, um, Nathaniel Philbrick, uh, we don't want to melt down into a puddle of relativism. But on the other hand, I mean, it's probably worth noting that, you know, as is often said, the victors write the histories. And, and there's there are ways in which, obviously, well, actually, before I even ask a question, I have to get up on my hobby horse or my soapbox or something and say that, you know, one of the ongoing fascinations for me is Nathan Hale, who's a Connecticut state hero and is sort of not unconnected to this story, particularly uh, through uh, John Andre. There was a sense uh, among uh, the, the patriots and, and the, the new Americans afterwards that, you know, John Andre was this kind of James Bond guy. I think he wound up being shipped back to Westminster Abbey for, you know, fancy burial there. We didn't really have this great uh, spy story. Uh, Nathan Hale was a pretty obscure figure during the revolution, but his story was kind of built up uh, for a lot of different reasons, also including, amusingly enough, the fact that Yale didn't feel as though it had uh, enough um, uh, revolutionary war heroes compared to some of the other colleges. So there were a lot of essays and, and epic poems and things like that published in places like the Atlantic for about 75 years. And uh, I got chills, actually, when I uh, saw, I think it's in Nathaniel Philbrick's book, um, uh, there's a moment where, um, where Benedict Arnold kind of paraphrased phrases Joseph Addison's Cato, which is also the source of Nathan Hale's famous last words. So uh, lots of connections here. But uh, uh, rather than talk about that right now, Nathaniel Philbrick, one thing we do know is, okay, Victor's write the history. And so that can't, we, you can't unwrite the stuff that Eric Lehman just talked about. I mean, you know, Arnold did this stuff. Uh, a lot of it's pretty unforgivable. A lot of it's pretty merciless. But there's other things that go on uh, as part of this. Once you decide that somebody's a villain, there's a temptation to rewrite or cherry pick the rest of the history to, to reconfirm the fact that he's a villain, even this year on eBay. Don't you love the fact that history is now over on eBay? Uh, the, they found this letter from uh, some participants in the Battle of Saratoga, which kind of makes it clear that, that even some of the questions that were asked about Arnold's behavior there are wrong, that he really was maybe even more epic at the Battle of Saratoga than anybody had suspected. And one of the historians up there in Saratoga said, yeah, but see, you know, once he was a villain, then there was no real incentive to find him heroic in some of his uh, earlier behavior. So, I mean, I, I sense in your book, uh, there's a little bit of that. It's like, well, you know, did we ever have any real incentive to think about this guy in anything other than um, the kind of villainous tincture that we needed for our nation building. Yeah, well, you know, he became the stuff of mythology um, as as soon as he uh, turned to the British side, and you know, it, it was just uh, inconceivable for Americans to to think that he would had been like them and uh, faced with what was happening with the revolution, whereby it looked like the American people had basically turned their backs on the commitment they had made with the Declaration of Independence, that someone who had been a great hero could make the decision that this was 
it was time to abandon the cause and bring back the British. And, and so it was much easier to say this guy was evil incarnate. We just, he was so evil that he was able to mask it uh, throughout those first few years. Uh, even though he performed well on the battlefield, that was because he was just inherently an evil person who was doing his best to hide it. And ultimately he was revealed, and thank God, in fact, it was through the intervention of a deity, uh, his plot was revealed, and, and we were saved. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a very comforting approach to explaining it away. And, uh, you know, Arnold, I, I mean, part of the thing about Arnold is uh, he was, like many people, his own worst enemy. Um, you know, when he would do these great heroic battles, he would then anger his fellow officers and the politicians and would make problems for himself. And, you know, when I was working on this book, you know, I, there was this tendency to say, come on, Arnold, just, you know, just hold on, go control yourself, uh, you know, be quiet here and let your achievements le- uh, lead for you rather than, you know, piss off everybody. And, um, and when it came to his ultimate decision to go to the British, uh, uh, just what has been described there at, at New London, there he is, um, uh, doing the one thing that could completely uh, mark him as the most evil person ever created, uh, go and burn basically his hometown to the ground. And so uh, that was part of Arnold's makeup. And, and um, you know, what he would ultimately do was terrible. Uh, but I, I think there's a, there, there, there's, you can't help but say, hey, you know, uh, uh, it's just too bad. He had so many talents, and yet he had this essential flaw that would ultimately uh, lead his character into becoming uh, what is basically a, a parody, uh, but a necessary parody for a country that had its hero, George Washington, and needed a villain if it was going to have a Genesis story. And, and Arnold was the perfect candidate for exactly that. You know, Eric, We uh, any cause needs villains, and, and uh, I mean, Arnold made himself available in all the ways that you've said, um, and uh, it is sort of interesting at this moment where everybody's very interested in Alexander Hamilton, uh, and he just, the show just won every Tony uh, imaginable uh, in your book and in Nathaniel's. You know, Hamilton is kind of all over the place. I mean, he's, he's, he's kind of the guy who smells a rat initially, I think. He, I mean, even before they get to West Point, he, he's... I think they're like almost there. He's already starting to say, right, there's something a little off here. And then after after the plan gets tipped, he's just riding on horseback all over the place trying to catch this guy. Oh, yeah. He rides. He, he gets really uh, immediately as soon as Washington says, whom can we trust now? And, you know, after he reads this letter from Benjamin Talmadge, which says, you know, Arnold's a traitor, uh, Hamilton gets on his horse, rides down to the to the. Uh, the, where the British nearest British ship was, which is what Arnold was heading for. Um, there was a little incident that happened when Arnold got onto that ship, which made me... There were lots of little things that made me not like Arnold, too. He he has two Americans row him over to the ship, um, saying, I'm, I'm under a flag of truce. And as soon as he gets on the ship, he says, arrest these two guys. They're revolutionaries. And the commander of the British ship thinks this is so beyond, you know, this is not what gentlemen do in, mm. in war. And he lets the guys go. But um, but Hamilton just misses him. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of people who actually suspected him beforehand. But all that got wrapped up in uh, the other people who hated Arnold for political reasons, you know. So Joseph Reed is going after him. All these, you know, con- he and Congress are fighting. Um, he's mad about 
Gates, all these people. So when things in the Philadelphia newspaper, there's somebody comes out and says, hey, Arnold's a traitor. He's talking to the British. This is before he gets caught. Nobody pays attention to it because it gets wrapped up in the anti-Arnold faction of politics there. We should say also that, um, you know, I mean, every cause does need a villain, as you've both said, or maybe needs lots of villains to keep people going. This war dragged on for a really long time. And so uh, in uh, in 1780, uh, there was one of those essays uh, written by Publius, who we think probably was Alexander Hamilton, kind of trying to use this Benedict Arnold story as a way of whipping up flagging spirits. Uh, You know, here's this horrible guy. Look what he almost did to us. Um, I mean, Nathaniel Philbrick, in that sense, I mean, that's sort of the other way you need heroes. This war took a long time to conclude itself. It was fought by all kinds of people uh, under all kinds of circumstances, uh, either with or without the proper resources. So when you have something like this, you can kind of use it to to whip up your base. Absolutely. And this is kind of the tragic I- irony of Arnold's life. You know, in the beginning of the war, no one does more short of Washington for the American cause, but it's through his treason uh, that he really galvanizes a nation. He's burned an effigy in towns up and down the eastern seaboard, you know, and this is at a time where the American cause had basically cratered. Uh, it, it just looked like uh, this, this country was about to fall apart, and uh, it leave it to Arnold to, to inject some kind of sense of, oh my gosh, we have this shared enemy. And it's not just the British, it's from within. And, um, and so Arnold really served a purpose uh, 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 when it came to America's evolving sense of itself as not just 13 colonies or 13 states, but as a united nation, because we, we saw the great betrayer, the, the, the great evil incarnate that was threatening uh, this country, and it was Arnold. And so, um, you know, there you go. He's someone, uh, it, 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 it trashes his own, own character. Uh, and, you know, and, and because he was a traitor, um, he, it wasn't as if the British embraced him uh, since he was... Uh, since his attempt to sell West Point didn't work, uh, that didn't end the war, and so he was tainted goods on both sides. And so, um, you know, Arnold you c- will never be a victim, given the fact that he, he uh, sold his loyalty f- to the highest bidder. But it's an interesting, tragic life, uh, given the art, you know, how much energy and passion he put into the cause, and how that same energy and passion really work to his own disadvantage and self-destruction. I have just enough time to say goodbye and thank you to Nathaniel Philbrook. His book is Valiant Ambition. Eric Lehman, his book is Homegrown Terror. They are both books about Benedict Arnold, both works of history. And once you've mastered them, you can read Brad Meltzer's The House of Secrets. I shall treat their malice and calumnies with contempt and neglect. 